Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 47th episode of our news podcast. This is going from June 4th to June 10th. Obviously, it's the first one I've done in a while. I had a pretty heavy semester with college, um, but I'm all done. I'm graduated. Um, so hopefully, you know, I could start putting these out more um, on a weekly basis, ideally, and get some more content for you guys, some more war reports, more uh, interviews, that sort of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be done uh, with school, you know, and just so I could get to doing this more, you know, I, I really enjoy what I do with this podcast and with the bulletin and, you know, with social media and all that. So I'm glad I could uh, be at a point where I could start rolling more things out for you guys. Um, with that being said, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or you could uh, donate to us directly at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. I would really love to uh, get to a place where I could do this full time. Um, and the more support I get from you guys, you know, brings that closer to becoming a reality. So again, please, uh, if you like our work here, please consider supporting us. That really helps us out a lot. This podcast, along with our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. Also, check out the Lethal Minds Journal. That's a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands. That's a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. You could head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal. And just a couple quick notes on that. Actually, the bulletin is looking for some more contributors. We want to expand our team a little bit and uh, roll out some more special reports in between the bulletins and things like that. So if you're interested in this sort of thing, you know, writing about uh, global affairs, current events, and all that, if that's something you like doing, if you want to get published, you know, something you could put on your resume, Feel free to reach out to us. You know where to find us on social media. Uh, we would uh, we would love to have you guys if this is something that you're interested in. We really want to expand our staff. And then also looking at the uh, the journal side, the journal is always looking for veterans and, and active duty writers to um, submit their work so we could get you guys published. You know we have a, a great editing team that really works for you. If you have really no writing experience, whatever. Um, if you want to write something. Feel free to submit it. The editing team will work with you. We really don't have that many barriers to entry um, as long as your piece falls in line with the, the mission of the journal. And as long as you're a veteran or uh, currently serving in the military, then you're in. Uh, we will really work with you if you don't have that much experience. So please, if that's something that you wanted to do, you know, get published in a journal. Also put that on your resume. Um, grow your portfolio, uh, please submit to the journal comes out every month. The submission window for the next issue opens up. I mean, pretty much right as uh, any given issue releases. So we got the next release coming up on July 1st. And then the submission window for August opens up right then. So again, if that's something that interests you, consider it. And that is all I got for you guys. So we will head into the podcast. Okay, we're going to start off with Europe and Eurasia. In the United Kingdom on June 9th, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned as a member of Parliament for Uxbridge and South 
Ruslip. This came amid an investigation by the Privileges Committee of the House of Commons that is looking into whether or not he lied to the chamber regarding parties that government officials held in violation of strict COVID-19 protocols. Johnson called the investigation a, quote, kangaroo court. He was a member of parliament since 2001. And just a quick note, that uh, scandal that came about with with the parties during the COVID lockdowns, that's pretty much what uh, ended up having him resign as a uh, as the prime minister, I should say. Just a quick note. Moving on to France, on June 8th in the town of Annecy in the French Alps, a man wielding a knife randomly attacked multiple people at a playground. In total, he stabbed and wounded six people, two adults and four children aged 22 months to three years old. The suspect was eventually chased out of the park and shot and arrested by law enforcement. The man that's credited with chasing him out of the park and protecting women and children in the area has been called the, quote, backpack hero, who identified himself only as Henri. Henri is a Catholic pilgrim who was on a backpack tour of French Catholic cathedrals in the area when he saw the attack going on. He told the media that he let himself, quote, be guided by Providence and the Virgin Mary. He then ran over to the park and began chasing the attacker and hitting him with his backpack. Henri and other bystanders were able to eventually chase him out of the area. The suspect was identified as a 31-year-old Syrian refugee that received asylum from Sweden in 2013. He recently requested asylum in France, but was denied. Witnesses claimed hearing the man say, quote, in the name of Jesus Christ, multiple times. Henri claimed hearing the man say, quote, many weird things in multiple languages, invoking his mother, father, and, quote, all of the gods. Henri met with President Emmanuel Macron, who personally thanked him. He asked Macron to be invited to the reopening of the Notre Dame Cathedral next year. And when interviewed by French broadcaster BFMTV, he said, quote, when you know that you're loved by God and that he saved our lives, you can act without thinking too much about your own life to try and save those children, end quote. Moving on to Greece, the country has recognized its Tier 1 Special Paratrooper Section, also known as the ETA, that contributed to the evacuation of Greek citizens in Sudan amid heavy fighting between two factions of the armed forces. ETA operators were sent to the capital Khartoum, where the heaviest fighting was taking place in mid-April. Those troops were able to evacuate 125 Greek citizens from the country. Moving on to the South Caucasus state, organized Azerbaijani protesters are still blockading the de facto ethnic Armenian Republic of Artsakh. The Lachkin Corridor, which connects Artsakh and Armenia, runs through Azerbaijani-controlled territory and is supposed to be kept open by Russian peacekeepers in the area who have so far failed to enforce ceasefire provisions that ended the Second Karabakh War in 2020. The blockade of the corridor has led to food and medical shortages in Artsakh, as well as at least one person dying due to not being able to travel to Armenia for a better uh, echelon of care. At this time, the only vehicles being let through the blockade are those belonging to Russian forces and the Red Cross, who is desperately trying to bring aid to Artsakh. We provided an update on the blockade in our last news podcast, which was in January. And this is still ongoing. The blockade has gone on for six months, over six months, and it shows no sign of ending. Moving on to East Asia and the Pacific in New Zealand. This is coming from my man, uh, Alcon Intel. Find him on Instagram at alcon.intel. 
In a recent meeting with his Chinese counterpart, New Zealand Defense Minister Andrew Little declined a proposed training exercise with China. Little expressed to Minister Li Shangfu that a joint exercise was not appropriate given the strained relationship between the two and the strained relationship between China and the United States. During the meeting at the Shangri-La Dialogue Defense Summit, Little urged Li to resume talks with the United States in order to lower tensions. During the summit, Li declined to meet with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Moving on to Australia, the federal government may ban Nazi symbols with a punishment of up to one year in prison for those that violate the law. The ban would include the trade of material with Nazi symbols, such as swastikas. It is said that the bill will not include a ban of the Nazi salute. However, exceptions will be made for educational, artistic, and religious purposes, uh, such as the use of the swastika by Hindus, Sikhs, uh, or practitioners of Jainism. The bill is set to be introduced to the legislator this week, and they will have a better idea of what it will entail once it's introduced. In the South Pacific, this is also from Alcon Intel, Fiji and the Solomon Islands are expected to sign a bilateral defense treaty that aims to strengthen regional cooperation in line with the national security strategy. The Solomon government has confirmed that negotiations are taking place to facilitate the deployment of Fiji security personnel to work with the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. This comes as the Solomons have already established security relationships with Australia, New Zealand, China, and Papua New Guinea. This deal with Fiji may set a precedent for future work within the Melanesian Spearhead Group and other regional groups as well. Moving on to Taiwan, the Ministry of National Defense has announced that it is not been made aware of any plans to share real-time intelligence from naval drones with the U.S. and Japan. This comes as some media outlets have been reporting that such intelligence was being shared, specifically an article from the Financial Times claimed that four MQ-9B Sky Guardian drones of the Taiwanese military are being integrated into the same data systems used by the U.S and Japanese forces in the area. It's not clear why the ministry made such a public denial of the claims detailed in that article. Moving on to the Middle East and Central Asia, Saudi Arabia, according to a classified document obtained by the Washington Post, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman privately said that he will, quote, not deal with the U.S. administration anymore. He also promised, quote, major economic consequences for Washington. This was in response to President Joe Biden, who vowed to impose consequences on Saudi Arabia for its decision last fall to cut oil production amid heavy energy costs for Americans in the approaching U.S. midterm elections. Since then, Biden has yet to place such consequences on Saudi Arabia and MBS, as he is known, continues to meet with U.S. officials like Secretary of State Blinken two weeks ago. The Saudi embassy in Washington did not immediately comment on the matter. It's not clear if the prince's statement was made directly to U.S. officials or if it was discovered through some sort of espionage. The classified document was released by Airman First Class Jack Teixeira, who is known for releasing tons of classified documents uh, relating to the Russo-Ukrainian War and other U.S. foreign policy matters, as you can see in multiple Discord servers. Biden has not had a good relationship with the crown prince as a candidate 
He pledged to make Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah state to do MBS's role in the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. That is a dissident Saudi journalist who worked for the Washington Post. He also had a residency in the U.S. He later tried to walk back those comments after taking office. His 2022 trip to Saudi Arabia was the subject of many headlines after he fist bumped the crown prince and unsuccessfully tried to persuade him to increase oil production just before the midterm elections. Moving on to Afghanistan on the 6th, a car bomb killed the Taliban's acting governor of Badakhshan province named Nisar Ahmed Ahmadi. That bomb also killed the driver and injured six other people. The Islamic State Khorasan province, which as you know is uh, ISIS's Afghanistan affiliate claimed responsibility for that attack. The group also killed the province's police chief back in December and the head of the mining department back in April of last year. The Taliban has been carrying out operations against ISKP, but the group remains the largest security threat to the Taliban. Attacks on the Taliban government may ramp up with the arrival of the summer and the fighting season. We will take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, and we're back real quick in Somalia on June 9th. Uh, in the country south, a bomb was found by children that were playing outside, uh, and it exploded. That killed 27 people and injured another 50. Most of them were children. This happened in the town of Moral, and the government has blamed al-Shabaab for placing the explosive, but there really hasn't been any updates since then. Lastly, with the Americas, a quick note on the last bulletin, looking at the Americas, we covered the Darien Gap, which for those who don't know, that is the stretch of land uh, that lies in Colombia and Panama. It separates uh, the Pan-American Highway, which runs all the way from Argentina to Alaska, except for the 66 mile long stretch of land that is like full of triple canopy jungles and in mountains and rivers. It's an incredibly dangerous area to try and traverse. Anyway, we covered that on the bulletin because that is that is a main uh, thoroughfare, I guess you could say, for human traffickers that are bringing people um, into the area with the eventual goal of reaching the United States. So we've seen a surge in activity in the Darien Gap. So if you want to learn about that, you could take a look at the bulletin. And then the other thing we covered in the bulletin was the president of Ecuador uh, basically dissolving the legislator um, using some sort of constitutional provision. And he's basically ruling by decree until I believe it was uh, September um, so, sometime ar around that area, around fall of this year. So if you want to learn more about that, uh, take a look at that as well. Those are the two things that the America's desk covered in the last bulletin. Moving on to Bolivia in February, 478 kilos, otherwise uh, over a thousand pounds of cocaine were found by Spanish authorities on a flight from Bureau Bureau International Airport in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. That plane was owned by uh, the Boliviana de Aviación, 
and operated by Spanish charter Wamos Air. BOA is a wholly state-owned enterprise. A Spanish investigation has just revealed that high-ranking officials in BOA and members of the Bolivian government may have colluded with drug traffickers to bring the cocaine to Spain. Additionally, Bolivian officials last week acknowledged that drug trafficking organizations have infiltrated the government at some level. According to Spanish newspaper El País, multiple attempts were made to obstruct the investigation from the Bolivian side. Also, after a request was made to see the surveillance photos of the plane being loaded in Santa Cruz, it was discovered that those photos were deleted beforehand. Eventually, photos were found showing cargo handlers breaking a police seal on cargo containers and filling them with 12 large boxes of cocaine. The cargo handlers, owner of the shipping company, and the police officer in charge of airport security have all been arrested. President Luis Arce said that there will be more arrests uh, in the coming future. The scandal has sparked widespread criticism of Arce, including from his mentor and predecessor, Evo Morales, and former President Carlos Mesa. There is speculation that this incident may hurt Arce's chances at re-election next year. Uh, We will keep you guys up to date if anything happens in that regard. Moving on to Peru, on the 7th, a group of indigenous demonstrators attacked two oil tankers in the Amazon region with gasoline bombs. They also kidnapped a dozen crew members from the vessels. Canada-based Petrotal said the ships were coming from one of its fields when they were attacked. The country accused Edisobap, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, which is an indigenous organization of coordinating the attack. The organization has not commented on that matter. The demonstrators were reportedly demanding more benefits from Petrotal, which pays 2.5% of its oil profits to local communities in the area. Peru is one of South America's smaller oil producers pumping only 43,000 barrels per day. Moving on to Mexico, five American tourists that were recently kidnapped by the Gulf Cartel were rescued by Mexican security forces. Several cartel members that are believed to be involved in the kidnappings have been arrested as well. The kidnapping occurred on June 1st when the Americans drove through a cartel checkpoint at an entrance to the city of Sota de la Marina in Tamaulipas, Mexico. The victims were described as five naturalized U.S. citizens that were originally from the Dominican Republic. Forces from the State Guard and the Tamaulipas Attorney General's Office came across a cartel convoy, which included the suspected kidnappers. After a firefight with the convoy, several men were arrested and four assault rifles with one grenade launcher were seized. The Americans were released later that day. The arrested suspects are members of the Gulf Cartel's Matamoros cell that operate under the leadership of Jose Alberto Garcia Villano, a.k.a. Laquena. This is the same group that kidnapped four Americans in Matamoros in early March, killing two of them. We covered that uh, on the bulletin as well in March. Also, Mexico's 34th military zone announced that its forces and the National Guard had discovered a synthetic drug lab in the jungle of Quintana Roo. This is just outside the town of Andres, Quintana Roo. Seven 50-liter plastic drums filled with an unknown substance were found inside the lab, as well as 14 plastic bags filled with a white powder and other equipment that they believe was used to produce drugs. Four men were arrested in that area, and the lab was destroyed. Moving on to Canada, starting in May, 2023 has been the worst year for wildfires in the country's recorded history. 
All provinces besides Nunavut and Prince Edward Island have been affected. Currently, Canada is fighting over 400 wildfires. Starting this month, smoke began to blow into the eastern United States, affecting the air quality. On June 6th and 7th, New York City had the worst air quality in the world, with uh, 194 and 342 AQI, respectively. Dubai was second place and had an AQI of 168. 150 to 200 is considered unhealthy. 201 to 300 is very unhealthy, and over 300 is hazardous. Some provinces in Canada have banned camping, hiking, fishing, and driving in forest areas for the time being. Residents in affected Canadian provinces, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania were advised to be cautious when going outside. Schools across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut were also temporarily closed. Sports leagues also postponed games due to the poor air quality, and as of June 9th, the smoke began to clear in the U.S. Over 950 firefighters had arrived in Canada from other countries, including the U.S., France, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Smoke from the wildfires has reached as far as Scandinavia. All right, moving on to the United States, we got a presidential race update on June 5th. Socialist political activist and philosopher Cornel West announced that he is running on the ticket of the People's Party. He's the first person to run on the party's ticket for president since the party was founded in 2017. In his announcement, West says that he will fight to end poverty, endless wars, and ecological collapse. On the 6th, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announced that he will run on the Republican ticket. The next day, on the 7th, former Vice President Mike Pence and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced that they will be running on the Republican ticket as well. Other Republicans already running include former President Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, radio host and former California Governor candidate Larry Elder, former South Carolina Governor and Ambassador to the UN Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. According to 538, Trump is leading in the polls at 54%, and DeSantis is in second at 21%. Democrats running for president include current President Joe Biden, environmental lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr., also the son of RFK, and author Marianne Williamson. According to 538, Biden is leading in the polls at 60% with RFK Jr. at 20%. I was really dreading these next two stories, but um, when something this big happens, you kind of have to cover it. So on June 8th, former President Trump was indicted by a grand jury with 38 counts in relation to the storing of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home after he left office. These charges are stemming from the investigation into those documents by special counsel Jack Smith. Those charges are 31 counts of willful retention of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act. You also got one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice, one count of withholding a document or record, one count of corruptly concealing a document or record, one count of concealing a document in a federal investigation, one count of scheme to conceal, and one count of false statements and representations. These charges carry no minimum sentence, but a maximum sentence of 400 years if convicted on all and given the maximum sentence for all those counts. 
Trump has been summoned to appear at the federal courthouse in Miami on Tuesday, where he will be arrested, uh, booked, and appear before a judge. It is actually already Tuesday. What time is it? It is about uh, 10.25 Pacific time here. Trump is set to appear at about noon Pacific time, so just in about an hour and a half. Trump called the 8th a, quote, dark day for the United States and said he will plead not guilty in court. I just want to make it clear, this this is a federal indictment. This is not the same thing as what's going on in the uh, District of Manhattan in New York. This is federal. This is, is very much different um, and much more serious. The indictment states that Trump kept hundreds of classified documents in boxes during his time as president and transferred those boxes to Mar-a-Lago after he left office without declassifying them. They included information on U.S. and allied weapons capabilities, U.S. nuclear programs, potential weaknesses of the U.S. and other nations, and a potential U.S. response to attacks by a foreign nation. It is alleged that Trump showed some classified documents to people without security clearances on at least two occasions. The indictment claims that Trump tried to obstruct the FBI and a federal grand jury by lying about uh, the storing of those materials. And just a quick note, guys, you could find this indictment online. I want to say it's, you know, like 48, 49 pages in total. It's, it's really not that long of a read. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that you guys come to me for information, of course, but, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this indictment and a lot of people have, you know, been lying about it or um, at least misrepresenting what, what is actually in the indictment. I encourage you to take a look at it for yourself. Again, I, I mean, it might take you maybe an hour to read. Um, it really didn't take me that long. It's out there. You could look it up on Google. It's for everybody to see. I encourage you to take a look at it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody else's word for it. See for yourself. All right. Sorry, you guys. I had to take a quick break. There's some guys behind me that are like cutting down a tree and they're kind of loud. I really hope you can't hear them. Uh, normally, I would just wait until they're done, but they kind of been there for a while and I am late in getting this podcast out. I want to get it out. Um, I mean, ideally before Trump heads into court, right, which is which is about an hour and 15 minutes from now. So, again, normally I'd wait. Um but I, I can't, I need to get this out. I really hope you guys can't hear it. If you can, I'm, I'm sorry, bear with me. Um, but I, I do need to get on with this. One of Trump's former lawyers, James Trusty, accused a high level lawyer uh, named Jay Bratt within the National Security Division of the Department of Justice of extorting a lawyer of one of the witnesses in the case. Trusty claimed that Bratt offered the witness's lawyer a position as a federal judge in exchange for getting the witness to cooperate with Special Counsel Smith's investigation. As of midnight on June 9th, the DOJ had not commented on that claim. Trustee did not offer any evidence to this accusation, but said that he would pursue a subpoena in relation to it. Trustee made these claims before he resigned from Trump's legal team the next day. Along with him, another attorney, John Raleigh, also resigned from Trump's legal team. It wasn't immediately clear why they resigned. Uh, this indictment has garnered widespread commendation from elected Republicans and those uh, running on the party's ticket in 2024. Vivek Ramaswamy called the indictment a, quote, affront to every citizen. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy called it a, quote, grave injustice and said that he stands with Trump. 
After the full indictment was unsealed, Republican Representative Andy Biggs from Arizona said in a tweet, quote, We have now reached a war phase, eye for an eye. Elected Republicans also drew attention to an allegation that broke on that same day. And just a quick note, um, I, I have to cover both these stories. Um, I, I can't just, you know, provide you with the story on Trump's indictment and then not provide the story on uh, these allegations on um, on President Biden. Right. And you guys already know my political leanings. You know, I'm, I'm an independent. I voted libertarian in the past two elections. I've already said that before. Um, I say that because I, I want you guys to understand um, my political leanings. Right. Just so you could take into account um, any biases that I may have. Obviously, I try to not let that affect my work, you know, but I, I am human. Um, so that's, that's why I want you guys to know that. Right. And I shouldn't be your only source of information. I appreciate that you guys come to me for news. I, I very much appreciate all your guys' support, but you shouldn't be getting your news from only one place, right? It should be multiple places just so you could kind of, you know, uh, get a good, get a good, uh, lock on, on what's actually true and, and what's just kind of opinion. You know what I mean? And that's why I tell you guys this. So heading into it, uh, this allegation broke on the same day Trump was indicted. It actually broke a few hours before he was indicted. And uh, it is embedded in an FBI document that claims Joe Biden was involved in a bribery scheme with foreign nationals when he was vice president under Barack Obama. That document was just given to Congress after an initial refusal by the FBI to do so when subpoenaed by Congress. That refusal prompted House Oversight Chairman James Comer to prepare proceedings to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. Eventually, Wray and Comer came to a deal in which the FBI would provide the document to Congress and Comer would scrap the contempt proceedings in return. The document has been tied to the investigation of the president's son, Hunter, by Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss. That investigation began during the Trump administration and it is ongoing. According to the document, a paid confidential human source that the FBI has used multiple times told the Bureau that Joe Biden was paid $5 million by an executive of Burisma Holdings, a Ukrainian natural gas company that Hunter sat on the board of during Biden's second term as VP. This human source reportedly had multiple conversations with the uh, unnamed Burisma executive beginning in 2015. The document that details these allegations is in FD-1023, which the FBI uses to record unverified information. It is important to note that simply recording information in an FD-1023 does not validate it, right? So these are just allegations at the moment. The source claims that this executive had to, quote, pay the Bidens, end quote, to enter the U.S. energy market. During this time, Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin was investigating Burisma, and the executive alleged that the investigation made entering the U.S. market difficult, necessitating payment to members of the Biden family. It is worth noting that when he was VP, Biden bragged about withholding $1 billion in monetary aid to Ukraine until prosecutor Shokin was fired, which he was. At an event for the Council on Foreign Relations in 2018, Biden admitted to such saying that he told then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, quote, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money, end quote. Biden claims that he wanted Choikin fired because he was soft on corruption. 
the confidential human source that made these allegations in the FD-1023 form has been used by the FBI since 2010 as a, quote, regular, reliable source of information, end quote, and has been paid roughly $200,000 by the FBI over the course of his service. All right, moving on. The Marine Corps has formally stood up its first long-range missile battery, also known as the LSML, in Camp Pendleton, California. Alpha Battery 11th Marine Regiment will be the first unit to be equipped with ground-launched Tomahawk cruise missiles. The Corps expects to have an entire battalion outfitted with Tomahawks by the end of the decade. It is expected that the battalion's main weapon system will be a version of the remotely operated ground unit Expeditionary Fires, also known as Rogue Fires, which is an unmanned 4x4 vehicle that the service will also use to fire anti-ship naval strike missiles, NSMs. If you guys know the Marine Corps, you know that they love acronyms, right? So that's that's why you have uh, such a long name like that. The Army has been making similar moves, acquiring the Typhoon trailer-mounted launch system that will fire the ground-based Tomahawks and SM-6 surface-to-air missiles as well. South Dakota Governor Christy Nome announced that she will be deploying at least 50 soldiers from the state's National Guard to the U.S.-Mexico border to assist with Operation Lone Star, that is a Texas-led mission, to secure the border without support from federal agencies. Ten other states have also deployed troops in support of the operation. Nome also sent troops to the border two years ago at the request of Texas and Arizona. Lastly, for the U.S. authorities from the Cleveland, Ohio area are warning of a, quote, unprecedented increase of reports of missing children aged 12 to 17. John Majoy, who is the police chief of Newburgh Heights, said that law enforcement agencies in the area are dedicating more resources to the issue after almost 30 children were reported missing in Cleveland during the first two weeks of May. For the entire month, 56 children went missing in the city. Majoy said that he doesn't know what the cause of the increase is, whether it be trafficking, gang involvement, or due to drug usage. According to a report from the state's attorney general, Dave Yost, there were 15,555 reports of missing children last year. 615 of those children remain missing. The U.S. Marshals Service said that it is dedicating more resources in the area as well and will be working with other agencies at all levels of government. And we're going to end it off with Colombia. I know I normally end it off with the U.S., but this time for once, I actually have the chance to end this podcast off on a positive note. So I figured I would save this to the very end. On June 9th, the Colombian military and local indigenous tribes found four missing children in the Amazon jungle. The children have been missing since May 1st. Their ages are 13, 9, 4, and 11 months. They are all siblings who went missing after their plane crashed in the jungle. That plane sadly killed their mother, the pilot, and a Yarapuri indigenous leader. The children will be cared for by their grandmother in their home city of Via Vicencio. The search to find them, named Operation Hope, involved over 100 Colombian commandos and 70 indigenous scouts. As the weeks went on, many believed the children to be dead, but obviously they were found. And Colombian President Gustavo Petro said that they demonstrated an example of, quote, total survival that will be remembered in history. That's all I got for you guys. I'm glad I was able to end that off with a good story for once. And I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Again, it means a lot to me. 
you can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That's all one word. We also have a Telegram, Analyze and Educate. Please, again, consider supporting us on Patreon and uh, Ko-Fi. Again, that would really help us out a lot and, and bring us closer to the goal of being able to provide you guys more content uh, on a regular basis. And be sure to leave us a five-star rating on whatever app you use to listen to this podcast. That also helps us out a lot. And I will see you guys next week with another news podcast.